A few years ago, I was at this Bible conference, and one of its talks was on church government, and I was interested. I hadn't thought much about the subject at the time, and so I decided to go, and I was by far the youngest guy there, probably by like 40 years. All the other guys in the room were like elders from a whole bunch of different churches. And the speaker got up, and he started to talk like this. He said, do you know why God made hell? Because he needed a place to put the deacons. And the whole room erupted with laughter. Now, I was shocked. First, because joking about hell is in terrible taste. But second, I knew that deacons served the church. I didn't know much else about them then. But it seemed terrible to joke about people who were serving God in the church needing to go to hell. And yet, as I looked around the room, almost everyone there had this knowing grin and this big laugh. And that told me that in almost every one of their churches, there was some problem with the way that their deacons functioned, that all of these elders could sympathize with this idea that their deacons should go to blazes. That's a really poor view of deacons and diaconal ministry. And yet, many church leaders apparently hold this view today. Now, thankfully, that has not been our problem here. When we started this church almost six years ago, our problem wasn't that we had a low view of deacons. Rather, it was that we had almost no view on deacons. The founders of this church had not seen diaconal ministry done well elsewhere. We knew the Bible talked about deacons, but we had a lot of questions about the passages mentioning them. And we decided not to try to answer those questions right away, but to figure them out later, which is why our bylaws say very little about deacons and why we didn't appoint any deacons in the first two years of our church's history. But over the last few years, we have studied this subject and discussed it, and we have, over the last four years, appointed two deacons. And today what I want to do is articulate a healthy vision for diaconal ministry in this church. We don't want to have a low view of deacons, and we don't want to have no view of deacons. We want to have a biblical view of deacons. And this morning, as we continue our study in 1 Timothy, we come to the longest discussion about deacons in the Bible. Now, you might think this is an odd subject for a sermon. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on deacons before. But this is part of the Scriptures. It's something that God wants churches to know and obey. And it's something God wants us to practice properly. After all, in next week's passage, Paul writes, chapter 3, verse 14 of 1 Timothy, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The Apostle Paul is writing to his friend Timothy, who's serving at the church in Ephesus, which is all messed up. And Paul says, here are some instructions that will help your church conduct itself properly. And one of the instructions Paul gives for how a local church is to operate properly is about how the office of deacon is to be administered. And so God, speaking through Paul, tells us this is an important subject that we need to know and apply today. So today we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. And today we'll look at three questions. First, what is a deacon? Second, who is a deacon? And third, what does a deacon do? Well, let's start with our first question. What is a deacon? Different churches answer this question differently. Many Baptist churches understand deacons to be the chief officers of the church. 
Other churches have officers called deacons who only function as groundskeepers and janitors. Still, other churches say that any congregant who serves the church in any capacity is a deacon. Lots of views about deacons. But what does the Bible say? Let's start by discussing this word, deacon. The English word is very close to the Greek word that it translates, uh, which is diakonos. And diakonos means anyone who renders a service. From the fellows serving tables at the wedding in Cana in John 2, to the Lord Jesus himself who serves by dying to save sinners in Romans 15, anyone who performs any service from the most menial to the most magnificent to even Jesus himself can be called a diakonos. Now, sometimes the New Testament uses diakonos as a title that describes recognized officers in the local church. And there are two passages in the New Testament that make this clear. I want to start by looking at them. The first is Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, which says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So Paul and Timothy are writing a letter. And who are they writing to? The saints in Philippi, the believers who belong to the Philippian church, and to the church's overseers and deacons. This tells us that the Philippian church had not just members, but also officers. And let me say three things about these officers. First, there are two groups of them. There are overseers, which we talked about last week, and when we said there were a number of different terms in the used, in the new, used in the New Testament that all describe just one office in the local church, the leading office, which is sometimes called overseer, pastor, leader, and most frequently, elder. So the Philippian church had elders, and it also had deacons. Note that both the overseers and deacons here are mentioned, and they're described in the plural. There were multiple elders in the Philippian church, and we saw last week that is the New Testament model, a plurality of elders in each church. But there were also multiple deacons in the Philippian church. Now, I don't think that that statement requires that there be a plurality of deacons in every church. I'll tell you why. Last week, we looked at Titus chapter 1, and there Paul told Titus, put what remained into order in some very new churches. And Paul told Titus to do that by appointing elders in each church. But Paul doesn't say anything there about appointing deacons. So I don't think that a church is biblically required to have deacons or a plurality of deacons. In some very new churches, like the churches Titus was tending to, there was not yet a need for deacons. But a more mature congregation like the Philippian church has found it useful not just to appoint one deacon, but to have several. And so I, think, I take from all of this that a church can have any number of deacons. Number two. Notice in Philippians 1 that Paul indicates the overseers, the elders, are a distinct group from the deacons. This is important because, as I said earlier, in many churches today, the highest-ranking officers in the church call themselves deacons. Now, usually these churches have one pastor who they consider to be their elder. And usually this pastor-elder is below the deacons 
on the organizational chart of the church. But this is not the biblical model. And understand, this is more than a question of semantics. If the highest-ranking officers of the church, the de facto elders, call themselves deacons, then two things happen. First, a church's leaders will ignore biblical passages that apply to them by saying, well, that passage is only about the pastor. He's an elder and we aren't. And so they will ignore biblical directives that apply to them. But second, if the church's de facto elders call themselves deacons, then we have to wonder who is it that is doing the work that biblical deacons ought to be doing. Ironically enough, it usually winds up being the pastor elder. So the elders call themselves deacons and ignore passages about the eldership, and the one person they call an elder winds up functioning as a deacon plus having to preach. So churches that follow this model wind up with a lot of confusion, dysfunction, and pastoral burnout. No, elders are elders and deacons are deacons. They are separate groups which should be reflected in terminology and function. Number three, there's a hierarchy among these offices. The elders are listed first, then the deacons, and that's not accidental. We saw last week that elders lead, teach, and guard the church, and they do this as stewards, servants who manage something that rightly belongs to Jesus alone. The New Testament tells us the church belongs to Jesus in no uncertain terms. Colossians 1 says he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus reigns over the church like a head reigns over a human body. He is our Lord. And so Jesus has plenary, final, unqualified authority over everything related to the universal church, over every believer who has ever lived, over every congregation that has ever gathered. Jesus has total rulership. His word is final and not subject to appeal. His commands are absolute and unconstrained. We have these commands today in the scriptures, which absolutely must be obeyed without question in the church. But underneath Jesus' lordship in each church, the leadership is to be exercised by the elders. And the elders have a local, qualified, unitary, and indissoluble authority. The authority of the elders is local. Each church is governed by its own officers. The elders of this church have no authority over the churches down the street, and their leaders have no authority over us. The authority of the elders is also qualified. Believers are to obey Jesus first and foremost, such that if the elders try to lead the church in a manner contrary to the scriptures, then believers should not follow their elders, but they should follow the Bible. But, Where elders are acting within the scope of their legitimate authority over the local church and in line with God's word, then they have a unitary and indissoluble authority. Now, in this church, we believe that elders are installed by the congregation and are accountable to the congregation. But after that, over every question, except those very few matters that are reserved for the congregation's decision-making, the elders have authority over the church. And the elder's authority cannot be sliced up or given away. So the elders can't say, well, you know, we we want to have a church library, but we don't know anything about church libraries. 
So let's create a committee and just give away all of our authority over the church library to this committee. We can't do that. Because at the end of the day, the elders can't parcel out and alienate their supervisory authority. Now, the elders can enlist people to help discharge the responsibility of running the library. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the library, just like everything else in the church, still ultimately must remain under the elders' oversight because Christ has tasked the elders to be his stewards. So the elders must oversee the church. The elders must oversee every aspect of the church, and they must do so in line with God's word, and they cannot punt on that authority. They cannot divest themselves of it. Holding that kind of authority over the church is what it means to be an elder. And because of that, we find passages like Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Or 1 Peter 5, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. These are strong verbs. Obey and submit. The church is to obey the elders so long as doing so means that we're still obeying Christ. But now we come to the deacons. And the deacons are subordinate to the elders. They're not over the elders we said a minute ago. Neither are the deacons equal alongside the elders. You find this in some churches, which see their officers as being like Congress, having two houses. Instead of the Senate and the House, they've got the elders and the deacons. And for anything to be approved, it's got to go through both houses. But that's not the biblical model. The deacons are not a second equal chamber of church government. Or sometimes churches say, well, the elders, they have authority only over spiritual matters, and the deacons, well, they have control of finances and buildings. Man, if you want to have conflict in a church, that's a great model to have, but it's not the Bible's model. No, the deacons serve under the elders, and we see this in the New Testament in three ways. Number one, when deacons are mentioned with elders in the New Testament, the elders are always listed first. This is not an accident. This shows the precedence of elders over deacons. Number two, the very terms used to describe the office of elder all speak of direction and leadership, but the term deacon speaks of servanthood. The whole orientation of the diaconal office is different from the eldership based on the term Paul uses to describe it. Number three, we never find any instruction in the New Testament for the church to obey or submit to the deacons. We will see in a few minutes an instruction that I think tells the church how it should relate to the deacons, but the language is different, and it shows that deacons are not on the same level of the organizational chart as the elders. So that's what we can learn from Philippians 1. We come now to the second passage that talks about deacons in the New Testament, and that's our main passage this morning, 1 Timothy 3. If you've got a Bible, turn there. And let's just start by looking at the first two words of our passage, 1 Timothy 3.8. He says, deacons likewise. This word likewise is an important structural marker in 1 Timothy. We find it back in chapter 2, where Paul is trying to stop certain practices that are disrupting congregational worship in Ephesus. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul doesn't want the church's prayer time to be marred by aggressive, angry prayers. But then Paul says in chapter 2, verse 9, likewise, the same word, 
Likewise, also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. By using this word likewise, Paul's indicating there's some kind of similarity between these two instructions. Yet one is directed towards men and one is directed towards women. Well, what is a similarity? At a minimum, these two commands are similar in that they're both trying to stop something disruptive to corporate worship. And so that tells us that when Paul uses this word likewise, he's joining ideas that have conceptual similarity, which speak to the same kind of matter, and yet he's joining two things that have some level of difference. Well, in the same way now, in chapter 3, Paul's talking about church officers. He's just described the elders, but now Paul says, likewise, he's going to address the same sort of issue, church officers again, but now a different aspect of church officers, not elders, but deacons. And from this progression of thought, we see the same ideas we saw back in Philippians 1. Deacons are officers of the church, like the elders, but deacons are distinct from the elders, and deacons are under the elders, are listed second. So that's the answer to our first question today. What is a deacon? A deacon is a church officer who is distinct from the elders and subordinate to the elders. Now, this leads to our second question, which is, who is a deacon? And that's what 1 Timothy 3 is all about, the qualifications for the office of deacon. And here we must make another observation. Some churches say any Christian who serves in any capacity is a deacon. Now, the New Testament tells us every Christian should serve in a local church. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 says every believer has received a spiritual gift. 1 Peter 4 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So every believer is to serve. But the office of deacon has certain qualifications that not every Christian can meet. And so that tells us that any Christian who serves in any capacity is not automatically a deacon. All of us can and must serve, but only those of us who meet the qualifications can be deacons. So deacons are qualified people who are publicly recognized by the church as being official servants of the church in some capacity. Now, what are the qualifications for the deacon? And Paul explains them by telling us now five things about deacons. The first thing he says is that they must have godly character that reflects a sincere faith. Paul explains this character with five statements. So we've got Five subpoints under the first group of five items. All right. First, Paul says their character must be dignified. The Greek word here speaks of a serious person who is worthy of respect. Deacons are the kinds of people everybody looks at in the church and says, that's someone who takes their faith seriously, who's really living out what they believe. That's the idea. Second, Paul says that the deacon is not double-tongued. The idea here is someone who uses their speech in an insincere way, saying one thing while meaning another, playing word games, or always telling someone what they want to hear. That kind of person must not be a deacon. The deacon must be marked by integrity and honesty in speech. Third, Paul says the deacon must not be addicted to much wine. Just like elders, deacons must not be characterized by drunkenness. The Bible never forbids drinking, but it always condemns drunkenness. And the deacon must have self-control, especially with respect to alcohol. 
Fourth, Paul says, the deacon must not be greedy for dishonest gain. He can't be in uh, serving the church to get rich. He's not to be characterized either in or outside the church by an intense desire for money. He must have integrity in his dealings so that what he earns is an honest wage, not gained through deception or criminality. Finally, Paul says that deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The deacon has to be a believer. He has to hold to the mystery of the faith. This word mystery refers to things that were formerly concealed, but now have been revealed. And in 1 Peter 1, Peter says that the Old Testament prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. So the Old Testament prophets, they wanted to know what was going to happen, but they didn't comprehend it. And yet 1 Peter 1.12 says, The things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, that's what they didn't see. The gospel is the mystery of the faith, the full humanity and deity of Christ, his death and resurrection, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the mystery of the faith that has now been revealed. That is what a deacon must hold to. And more than just believing that, the deacon has to hold to the faith with a clear conscience. Back in chapter 1, Paul used the language of a good conscience twice to talk about what it means to be a true Christian leader. In next week's passage, Paul says that false teachers have a seared conscience. Their lives are so mired in sin that sin doesn't bother them anymore. But the deacon, like the elder, he's not to be like that. The deacon is to live out what he claims to, be, to believe. His life should reflect his doctrine so he maintains a clear conscience. Now, just like the qualifications for an elder, these are not the qualifications of a super saint. These are the descriptions of the life every believer is called to live, and which we can live by the power of the Spirit. These qualifications are not saying that deacons must be sinless. They aren't. But generally, their lives should cohere with the sort of life the believer ought to live. That's the idea. Now, that's the first thing Paul says about deacons. They've got to have this kind of a character. The second big thing Paul says about deacons is that a deacon is someone who has been distinguished by previously serving the church well. 1 Timothy 3.10, Paul says, And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. This is one of the most important and yet least obeyed instructions in the whole Bible about church leadership. The deaconship and eldership are not jobs that we give to people with the hope that someday those folks will become qualified to hold them. It's not like, well, we see some potential here, so let's give you the title and hope it works out. No, the deaconship and the eldership are jobs that we only give to those people who show that they're qualified and show they can handle them. In fact, one of the things I look for in recommending people for leadership in this church is whether they're functionally doing a lot of what the job entails even before they've already been given the title. But we don't just give the title elder or deacon away to anybody. We certainly don't want to do what one church here in town does. When they see that a man isn't in regular attendance in church like he ought to be, they say, hey, come preach in our pulpit. 
or they make him a deacon. We don't give the title elder or deacon away as an incentive for a man to attend church. People who are not known for attending church with regularity, they shouldn't be rewarded with church office. They should be corrected with church discipline. To be a deacon is a weighty task. The Lord Jesus, speaking through Paul, commands that we give this office only to someone who has demonstrated an ability to discharge tasks that were assigned to him in a blameless way, a way that is above reproach. Paul says this means we've got to test someone who we are considering for office. Give them responsibilities. See how they're discharged. Did they follow our instructions? Did they get the job done? Was it done well and on time? Friends, when we work in church, we're not to cut corners and do a shoddy job just because it's volunteer work. We're to work under the Lord when we serve him. We're to do our best. And only people who have demonstrated they can do a good job with ministry tasks can hold the office of deacon, which is largely about getting important tasks done. So deacons are people who have demonstrated competence, faithfulness, and excellence in services rendered in the past. We'll skip verse 11 for a moment. We come now to the third big thing Paul says about deacons, which is that the deacon has a family life that is above reproach. Chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Greek has no unique words that differentiate the word man from husband or wife from woman. So literally here, we're told that the deacon is to be a man of one woman. This is the same language that was used to describe the elder. I argued last week, this does not mean that an elder, or in this case a deacon, must be married. But if he is, his marriage is to be marked with exclusivity and fidelity. In the same way, if a deacon has children, they are to be managed well. And a deacon is to ensure every aspect of his house is managed well. There is a sense that how you manage your household reflects how you will discharge other duties that the church sets on you. That's seen throughout 1 Timothy 3. And so deacons have to administer their homes well. That's the third big thing Paul says about deacons. Fourth, deacons are people who receive rewards. Look at verse 13. Paul says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Deacons who serve Christ and his church well are promised two rewards. First, they gain a good standing for themselves. Everybody else in the church will look on the deacons with respect and admiration because of their excellent work. Deacons who serve well are to be treated with honor because they have faithfully discharged an honorable task. Moreover, the deacon who serves well gains great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. When you serve as a deacon and you see that Jesus is using you, that gives you great assurance that the faith is true, that Christ is alive, that you belong to him, that you will reign with him forever. That's a highly encouraging and comforting thing. So the deacon obtains rewards outwardly and inwardly. But the fifth thing Paul says in this passage about deacons is that their qualifications are a bit different than the qualifications for elders. 
This is true in two ways. First, elders are required to have the spiritual gift of teaching, but deacons do not have this requirement. Now, that doesn't mean that deacons may not teach. If we have deacons who are gifted to teach, which we do, they should teach. But teaching is not an essential component of diaconal ministry like it is for the elders who are tasked with overseeing the church's doctrine. So that's one important difference. A second difference, I think, comes from verse 11. Paul says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, this verse is much debated. The controversy stems from an inherent ambiguity in one Greek word, gune, which can mean either a woman or a wife, depending on the context. Again, in Greek, there is no specific word that distinguishes between a woman or a wife. Now, when you read the ESV, you'll notice that verse 11 begins with the word there. However, that word is actually not found in the Greek text. It has been supplied by the ESV translators because they have concluded that this verse is about the wives of deacons. However, since ancient times, many Christians have understood this verse differently as establishing qualifications not for the wives of deacons, but for women who would serve as deacons called deaconesses. What should we make of this controversy? Let's start by explaining the position for concluding that verse 11 is talking about deacons' wives, meaning that only men may serve as deacons and that deacons' wives must meet the qualifications of verse 11. People who hold this view say, first, that 1 Timothy 2.12 forbids women from holding positions of authority over men, and proponents of this view argue that deacons are an authoritative office in the church, and therefore only men may be deacons. Second, they argue that 1 Timothy 3.12 says that deacons must be men of one woman, which would be nonsensical if applied to female deacons. And third, they argue that Acts chapter 6 describes the appointment of the first deacons, and they point out that the seven individuals chosen to serve the early church in that chapter were all men. These are good arguments, but they are not decisive. For starters, when 1 Timothy 2.12 describes the exercise of authority, it most likely means to prohibit women from exercising the office of elder, which is introduced three verses later. And because the authority that Paul prohibits women from exercising is joined in that verse with the word teaching, which again sounds like it's talking about the authority of the eldership, which is an office that primarily exercises its authority by teaching. Moreover, deacons are not elders. While elders discharge authority, as in final decisional governance for the church, deacons do not. Deacons may be tasked with responsibilities, but those responsibilities flow from the elders. And because the elders still maintain final decisional authority over whatever deacons do, the true authority for those matters still resides in the elders not the deacons. Moreover, while it might be odd to describe deaconesses as one-woman men, Greek is a language with gendered nouns, 
and in groups of men mixed with women, we would expect those groups to be described using masculine nouns. So it is possible that all deacons, male and female, could be described in Greek as one woman men. That is, people who are faithful in their marriages because of this nuance of gender within Greek. Alternatively, if that's not correct, one woman men might simply be a qualification that only refers to male deacons. Moreover, Acts chapter 6 describes something that is indeed similar to the appointment of deacons. But I'll show you in just a minute. There are a few distinctions in that passage that I think really distinguish what's happening in Acts 6 from what is going on in 1 Timothy 3 with the appointment of deacons. I don't quite think it's the same thing. Moreover, to hold that 1 Timothy 3.11 puts qualifications on deacons' wives is very odd. Because earlier in chapter 3, Paul put no such qualifications on elders' wives. This would run contrary to the logic of the passage, where Paul puts more qualifications on elders rather than on deacons. Beyond all of these arguments, there are also additional arguments that suggest that this verse describes qualifications for female deacons. First, where we find the word gune without any qualifying language, that is, without a possessive pronoun or an article, we would ordinarily translate this word as woman, not wife. So there's not a good grammatical reason for translating this word as wives. Second, not only does Paul say women, but he says likewise women. We spent a lot of time earlier talking about this word likewise in 1 Timothy that when it appears, it describes something that is similar to what came before it, yet which is also slightly different. Like in chapter 2, where Paul says to the church, here are some things you've got to stop doing that are disrupting congregational worship. And then he gives a command to men, and then likewise he gives a command to women. Now again, we find this same word in this same position between instructions for men and women. I think it is most natural to understand the use of likewise here to be functioning in the same way. We have two instructions related to a common office, the office of deacon. In the first instance, we have instruction about male deacons, just like in chapter 2, where we had instruction about male troublemakers. Then we find the word likewise, and then an instruction about a similar subject, deacons, but this time female deacons, just like in chapter 2, we then had an instruction about female troublemakers. Third, in Romans 16, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul describes a woman named Phoebe, whom he calls a servant, a diakonos, of the church at Kenkreai. Now, again, the ESV has chosen to translate this word diakonos as servant rather than deacon. Yet, other than in Philippians 1, 1, this is the only passage in the New Testament where we find someone labeled as an officially recognized diakonos of a particular local church. And in Philippians 1, everybody says those people are deacons. It'd be quite natural to understand Phoebe the same way. Moreover, in Romans 16, the way Paul talks about Phoebe suggests that she was the individual who carried Paul's letter to the Romans. It's clearly a very important official-type task. 
And Paul commands the church to welcome her and assist her in her work. All of which sounds exactly like what we would expect Paul to say if Phoebe was acting as a deacon on behalf of her church. In fact, if Phoebe was a deacon in the ancient church of Cancrae, it's hard to imagine how Paul could say that any more clearly than what he says in Romans 16. Fourth, we know that as early as the year 111, just about 20 years after the book of Revelation, there were deaconesses in ancient churches. Because about that time, a Roman governor wrote to the Roman emperor saying that he had tortured two female slaves who were called deaconesses because of their faith in Christ. In fact, the role of deaconesses is widely attested in the early church. And this interpretation of 1 Timothy 3, far from being of feminist origin, was held by faithful interpreters like John Chrysostom, Jerome, John Calvin, and Charles Spurgeon, none of whom can be called feminists. So for all of these reasons, linguistic, contextual, grammatical, and historical, our elders believe that verse 11 is most likely describing deaconesses and not deacons' wives. So we believe that the Bible would allow for the appointment of deaconesses. I know that some people may be uneasy with this, But at the end of the day, our interpretation of the scripture has to be the decisive issue in this question. Now, if we're right about this, this is a major distinction between the office of elder and deacon. Because the eldership can only be held and exercised by men. But the office of deacon may be held by qualified men and women alike. Now, the qualifications for deaconesses are very similar to those for male deacons. They must... Uh, not, they must be dignified, we're told, just like their male counterparts. They must not be slanderers, but like male deacons, they must have control over their speech. They must be sober-minded. The Greek term there could talk about sobriety from alcohol, which again would be parallel to the qualification for a male deacon. Or this word could just mean the ability to distinguish between serious issues and unimportant issues, and the ability to use clear judgment in discharging a task. Finally, deacons are to be faithful, or deaconesses are to be faithful in all things, which is comparable to the requirement that deacons must previously have served well and shown themselves able to do a faithful job. So who is a deacon? A deacon is a man or woman who is publicly recognized as an official servant of a church, who meets the biblical qualifications, who has proven faithful in previous service to the church, who has an exemplary family life, and who will be rewarded. Now we come to our third and final question, which is what does a deacon do? This question is a bit more difficult to answer because there's no passage in the Bible that says here are the duties of deacons. But there are a few general points we can make about what deacons should do. First, this term diakonos is often used in the New Testament to describe people who have served Christ by assisting Paul in ministry. So Tychicus, one of Paul's assistants, is referred to as a diakonos of the Lord in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4 because he helped Paul. In 1 Thessalonians 3, we find the same word used to describe Timothy. He's called a diakonos because he helped Paul. And so in the same way, I think we can understand the office of deacon as similarly functioning as an assistant to the elders. There's great evidence found for this in a very famous passage in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. 
Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose among the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. This passage describes some of the earliest days of the church. Controversies have begun to break out among the early believers, and here a new problem emerges. The church has grown larger, which is great, but as it's grown, it hasn't organizationally made plans to be able to continue providing for the church's needy widows. And so some of the widows who spoke Hebrew were still getting the food that they needed, while other widows who spoke Greek were being neglected. This may have been because of sinful discrimination, or it might have just been an accident due to the fact that the Hebrew-speaking widows knew the people who were distributing food better than the Greek-speaking widows did. But for whatever reason this is happening, it's a big problem. It's threatening the unity of the church. So the apostles stood up and they said, this isn't the sort of thing we need to be dedicating our time to. Our job is to minister the word that is preaching and teaching. And our job is prayer. We need other people to handle logistical and organizational duties in the church that we can't spend the time to deal with. And they invited the church to select seven godly men to execute these duties, which Peter calls serving tables. What should we take from this passage? A few things. First, a caveat. Many people see this text as the central text on New Testament deacons. But before we draw that conclusion, we need to notice a few things. First, the people in charge here are not local church elders. They're the apostles. Second, the seven who are chosen here are not referred to using the noun diakonos. And third, the qualifications given here for the selection of the seven are a bit different than the qualifications we find in 1 Timothy 3. For instance, nothing is said about their prior service or their family lives. So for these reasons, I don't think that this passage is describing deacons in a 1 Timothy 3 sense, as many people claim. And yet, the work done by the seven here is described in this passage with two other Greek words that are very closely related to diakonos. So I think Luke is using these words to signal that this was the beginning of the concept of having officially recognized church servants, even if these were not the exact same kinds of officers we find described later in 1 Timothy 3. These men are perhaps proto-deacons, the beginning of what will later become the office of deacon. But their service here is instructive, I think, because it lays down a precedent for the later, more clearly defined deacons we find in our passage. So what did these seven proto-deacons do? They accomplished tasks that the apostles needed done, but which the apostles themselves could not manage effectively alongside their other tasks. So these seven were vital assistants to the apostles. And I think that's a great way for us to think about deacons today. 
The deacons help the elders get vital church work done. What kinds of work? Well, the apostles then, like church elders today, have to give primacy to the duties of prayer, preaching, and teaching. And yet there are many logistical, organizational, and physical duties that have to be performed in the church. In Acts 6, the seven are said to serve tables. Does that mean that deacons should only distribute food? No, think about it like this. To do their job effectively, the seven had to get to know the widows in the church and figure out who needed what. That's ministering to people. Second, they were tasked with meeting physical and material needs that these people had. Third, by making these food distributions, the seven were discharging the church's benevolence ministry. They were giving to those in need. Fourth, by dealing with this problem, they were solving a problem and helping bring unity to the church. And friends, I think all of these are absolutely vital spheres that deacons today need to address. Deacons are not just groundskeepers or facilities managers, although when that stuff has to happen, usually it is more deacon work than elder work. That is something deacons can and should do, but it's not the only reason we have deacons. In the same way, in our church right now, our current deacons have assigned tasks like music or security or men's ministry or facilities. But our deacons are not only to function in those areas of the church's life. The deacon's tasks must be varied, and they must address different needs as they arise. Being a deacon involves people work. It can involve managing people. It can involve ministering to people, either people that are part of their own ministry as a deacon. So uh, Kyle sometimes has to manage various musicians uh, under him, but sometimes he goes and helps people who are in the hospital. Sometimes deacons have to go and tend to widows and, and the elderly and orphans and the most vulnerable members of our church community. And often deacons will have to learn what physical needs these vulnerable members have and tend to them. Moreover, being a deacon can involve the management of church money, including the distribution of our benevolence fund to our members. or helping to work in our treasury and account for the inflow and outflow of our finances. Being a deacon generally involves being on the lookout for problems and coming up with ways to solve them. And sometimes the solution is obvious and can be dealt with immediately by a deacon without having to consult the elders. Sometimes it means going to the elders and saying, hey, there's a big problem developing with this person and, and you need to know about it and getting further instructions. Deacons assist the elders by discharging responsibilities that the elders assign to them by helping to comfort and serve church members in need, and by keeping their eyes open for problems and their minds engaged in looking for solutions. And that's why we need deacons, and that's why we need to respect our deacons, because they perform a vital service for our church, handling important logistical and tangible duties, allowing the elders to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. So that's what a deacon is, who a deacon is, and what a deacon does. I'd like to close with some exhortations. First, if you have needs that you would like the church's assistance with, we need to know about it. Suffering and silence is not noble. And if you're a part of this church, we've got deacons who are here in part to help you meet these needs. Joe Ranch and Kyle Sishin are our deacons. Their contact information is in the bulletin. We hope to appoint some more deacons soon. If you're part of the church, I want you to know it's good to call on your deacons and get to know them and, 
And ask them when you need help, especially if you're elderly or dealing with health problems. We have people who are ready to help you. Please give them an opportunity to serve you. Second, I want you to aspire to serving this church as a deacon. The eldership is reserved only for men who have the gift of teaching and meet all of the other qualifications we talked about last week. But diaconal ministry is open to men and women who have all sorts of spiritual gifts. And while being a deacon is a very high and responsible calling, the truth is many more of us will meet the biblical qualifications for a deacon than we will for an elder. And that's a good thing because being a deacon is a wonderful office to hold. It's something Christ rewards and that the church honors. Aspire to being a deacon. This leads to my third exhortation, which is we should consider the the list of attributes we find in our passage. Because Not just because these are the qualifications for a deacon, but these are good things to examine ourselves by. Because what a deacon ought to be, his character, that's the same kind of character that each believer should pursue in our own lives. First, are you a believer? Have you repentantly entrusted yourself to Jesus, his deity, death, and resurrection? If not, you're lost. You don't belong to him. Repent and believe in Christ. But if you are a believer, do you have a clear conscience? Does your life reflect the truth of your profession? Examine yourself by this list. Are you a dignified person? Does your life show that you take the faith seriously? Are you known for honesty and guarding your tongue? If not, why not? Do you have self-control, particularly with alcohol? Do you have a problem with greed? Worship God, not money. Do you have your family life in order? How's your marriage? Are you faithful to your spouse in thought, word, and deed? Are you a responsible parent, training your children in the admonition of the Lord? These are good things for us to all ask ourselves, regardless of whether we ever serve as a deacon. Have you ever served in this church? If you wanted to be a deacon, have you rendered any service that would allow us to say, well, you've certainly proven yourself to be a faithful worker in the past? Friend, if you're a believer, God has given you a spiritual gift. It's on you to learn what it is and develop it. If you are serving in this church, are you working hard and being faithful at your charge? Would your service be what Paul calls blameless? Or is it half-hearted? Examine yourself by this list. And friends, if you want more responsibility, if you want to serve more in church, come talk to the elders. We've got lots of ways to put you to work. But the last thing I want to exhort you to do today is pray for your deacons and commit to helping them with what they need for their ministry work. In Romans 16, Paul speaks about Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancrae, and this is what he says. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cancrae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. That's how the Bible tells us to interact with our deacons. Because our deacons are acting on behalf of Christ, this church, and the elders. So when you talk to them, treat them with respect. Honor them in a way that God's people should honor his servants. Pray for them because of their weighty responsibilities. And commit yourself to helping them in whatever they need from you. So they can get the important jobs done that they bear. Because they are serving all of us well. And so we should regard them as being among the very best of us because they are serving us. For the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 23, the greatest among you 
shall be your servant.'"